Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Wildlife For You podcast, where we talk about wildlife and wildlife conservation in ways that make sense. I'm your host, Stephanie Payne, and I am joined here by my good friend and fellow wildlife biologist, Daryl Redajek. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm a good friend and fellow wildlife biologist. I see I'm dropping down the list. What gives? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> you make a terrible Arnold. <laughs> 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 and All I'm right. not meaning from Green Acres either. I'm talking about that other one with Mr. Drummond. Anyway, <laughs> whenever you introduce me, Steph, usually I'm your like best friend or heck, I think I've even been like a great friend and I've even been brilliant once. So now I'm just a good friend and a fellow wildlife biologist. So what gives on that? Oh, oh, bloody hell. You're not still pissy at me for calling out your mispronunciation of the word epoch now, are you? Oh, you pronounced it correctly. I'm so proud of you. I, that was supposed to be English, but I think I came out as an Irishman. Um, no, you <laughs> they're, weren't they're close. Bad. They're close. No, no you I could weren't. Do that again. Oh, bad. I've been waiting. To, been wanting to say that line for a while now. Your whole life, like yeah. Yeah, my whole life. Oh, bloody hell! <laughs> well, I bloody think I hell. Move there. Yeah, I you you sound like you're from like down in you know the the very southern part of Britain, Liverpool. Yeah, you're from Liverpool. You kind of beat me in everything, don't you? <laughs> anyway, it's it, no, no, it's I, there was no slight on you, sir. It is it is just me. You know, you've been busy. I've been with busy. The the weather when it got cold, it's, it's nothing major. But but in other news, dear listeners, last week, if you recall, Daryl and I we tackled a touchy topic, and it was regarding the most destructive species on the planet. Coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> no, still not coyotes, D, still, but we're, we're talking about humans. Anyway, in our last segment, we actually addressed much of the revolutionary aspects of our species. I tried to explain the concept of ages that we're referring to because they're really, really huge spans of time. Hopefully, I did not confuse everybody too much. It was totally not my intention if I did, but needless to say, humans have been leaving their mark on the earth for a very, very long time. Yeah, and in that episode, we discussed those human-developed acts that led to the big one, the, the act that changed the landscape forever. And that was in our, well, I think this argument could be made all over the place, but that single act was this concept of agriculture, or easier said, farming. Yeah, because... You know, that that was the, the first major instance where an animal species, instead of utilizing the resources that Mother Nature provided, harnessed those resources and then started creating their own food through a farming practice. You know, it's pretty unique to humans. This is both through growing plants, cultivating animals, whatever, but it's for their own use. So these practices had resounding impacts on the land for a number of reasons. Um, obviously farming, it can alter the landscape because, you know, the way that the land is actually cultivated, but there's also more subtle impacts that they can have, um, you know, that, that also have those resounding consequences. Yeah, they can absolutely have resounding consequences. Like, for example, we, we briefly mentioned GMOs or genetically modified organisms, now, there's a lot of folks out there that believe these products, these GMOs are developed in a, in a lab by some kind of like crazy mad scientist. But truth be told, folks, GMOs, they, they've been produced by humans for over 10,000 years. 
it was the first time that man with this concept of agriculture and farming man was or humans were dictating what species survived as opposed to the the forces of natural selection so wait now you want to go and get all politically correct <laughs> this is the first time i was okay with you being like man i, I heard i heard you snickering in the background i'm like i'm wondering if she's like catching on that i i had to clarify that and apparently you did anyway so what daryl means by this is when humans started farming plants and animals they the the early humans were the ones that selected which plants and animals were the best to keep around by by their own selection now that that doesn't mean that they are necessarily the most fit specimens that nature could provide a really an easy good example of this is domestic cows i mean think of that thousand pound Angus cow out there munching on the grass and that huge wide open field, not a care in the world other than the, the niblets that he has in front of him. There is not but a bevy of predators out there in the wild that could even take down that huge animal, right? Keep in mind, this is not only including predators of today's world, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, but- I'm sorry. You gotta say, you gotta say that. Whenever you... <laughs> oh my gosh! I'll do, will... I'll, I'll do Dorothy here. Oh my god! I don't even want to. Never mind. Anyway, so it doesn't include just lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! But it would also include all of those predators that are gone by the evolutionary wayside, such as the saber-toothed tigers, um, cave or snub-nosed bears. This whole slew of, I mean, honestly, pretty fearsome, amazing, epic predators. But how well do you think that cow? that's out there munching in the field would have been able to defend themselves or run away. I mean, if you've seen a cow run, it's not exactly a graceful and fantastic speed kind of thing. So in other words, those species probably wouldn't have fared too well over that huge span of time without the assistance of humans. In this case, you know, the humans were actually helping to protect those, those selected species from predators. Yeah. And because of that protection, just so you know, Steph, or so everyone knows, I, I'm sure you know this, it kind of shaped the way they evolved. They, they did not have to evolve with some fast flaring muscles to run away because they didn't have to run away anymore. So that, that human protection shaped those animals. And so what has resulted is th- there's a number of species that probably wouldn't be here right now, or if they were, they would look and act much differently. Now, we discussed examples of this in a previous episode when we were talking about that landscape of fear concept and kind of how like like deer, for example, they react much differently when apex predators are either on or off that landscape. Yeah, but another huge consequence from this act of farming is that it literally uncorked that carrying capacity, which is a biological term, but the carrying capacity for humans. So in other words, their population became almost limitless because suddenly humans could secure all of the resources that they needed to survive. Now, obviously there's a limit out there, um, but you know, we're, we're not hitting that right now. And it's mostly due to technological advances in the farming industry. But anyway, I'm, I'm totally going to digress if I keep on that track. Although farming has had major impacts on the earth, it is not the only activity that's had those major impacts that's affecting our geologic record. So D, which I'm going to say now stands for Dorothy. Um, <laughs> what do you say we we kind of take turns mentioning some of the ways that humans have altered the landscape? I think it sounds like a plan. So uh, can I go first? 
Oh, sure, Dorothy. <laughs> I'll quit. Yeah, I, I am no. Uh, oh my gosh, I, I am. I'm gonna get you back. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're we're gonna talk about these like major impactful things that humans do. So, I will start with probably the easiest one to see, and that's probably these man-made structures that we create. Now, I'm not just talking about our homes, but literally everything that humans create. So think about like the cities and the towns. When, when, you're, when we're referring to these places where all these humans live, it's often referred to as this urban sprawl. And, and it's pretty much a permanent fixture on that landscape. So yeah, I totally understand if if we suddenly abandon our cities and towns um, and those, those areas were literally left to the forces of nature, Mother Nature would absolutely reclaim those areas and not that long of a time, just look at the whole Chernobyl area. But regardless of how quickly they start falling back to nature, they're still gonna be visible in that geologic record for thousands and thousands of years. So just look at those those primitive archaeological sites that we're still researching that existed thousands and thousands of years ago. And those structures were primarily made from sticks and stones. So we're still finding those areas where humans have lived on the landscape. Now imagine concrete buildings and skyscrapers. If humans suddenly disappeared, all those structures, they're going to remain on the landscape for quite some time. Yeah, for sure. Going to definitely add to the archaeologic record. <laughs> I get. Can I add even more widespread aspects of that humans for all though? Yeah, of course. Okay, so just think about all the roadways and the highways that connect those places. You know, most of those are now made of of very durable substances like concrete. So those are not going to be disappearing anytime soon. So I mean, like if you take any simple look at an aerial photo, it shows this spider web of roadways that we've created across the, the landscape. And I am so glad you brought up that point, Steph. And truth be told, if you didn't bring it up, I probably would have. Because roadways, they'll not only be a blight on this earth, but even right now in current times, they're having major impacts on countless species. And so if you think about it, they cause a number of issues from habitat fragmentation to creating these impassable barriers. Yes, a moose could walk over a road, but you look at a turtle or a frog. Sometimes roadways create these barriers for wildlife. Anyway, they, they have major issues on wildlife connectivity. And another thing that not many people realize is sometimes these roads that we, we build into new and exciting places that have never had a road before, it creates a pathway that it makes it much easier for invasive species to travel and to get into those areas. That's actually an excellent point. And I think we need to come back to that. Um, but before we do, I've been chomping at the bit to mention one of the most damaging human activities to the land, or in this case, maybe I should say the water. Oh, you're probably stealing my thunder, but I, I think I know what you're going to say. Well, and I bet you do, because, you know, that's how we are. But, and we actually discussed this not too terribly long ago, so... Damn, I, I, I do know. So, damn, I'm good. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, and damn is right, because I'm actually talking about hydroelectric dams. And given where you live in East Tennessee, you probably know all about this issue. 
Um, yeah, and it's not just an East Tennessee issue, it's a global issue. Yeah, true. Okay, so, and I and I will sidebar this by saying, because there's, there's going to be somebody that's going to come back and say, okay, look, y'all, um, structures and things may be part of that geologic record, but a geologic record is, is pretty huge. So, you know, it'll be remnants at best. This is one where we've truly, truly altered the land and made it essentially go because of, of man. We've essentially changed water retention rather than something in nature happening naturally that takes a, an area that was arid and turns it into water or vice versa. Um, but humans, we've literally been harnessing the power of water once again for thousands of years. You know, originally in the Middle East, Egyptians started constructing these aqueducts to bring water into their cities, not only for drinking, but for sanitation. And of course, diverting water from their main courses to irrigate farmland. Um, that was a, a pretty solid concept that took hold in, in areas where they had to figure out how to continue to grow ever larger sets of resources, but they lacked that primary source of water that came from natural sources, precipitation from the sky to be able to water those plants. So that's, that's kind of, they said, hey, we got that river. Let's kind of dig some long troughs from it and we can use that to irrigate our farmland. Um, so that, that really was where that concept of irrigation took hold. Yeah, and I'm going to throw in something because you mentioned it being in the old world, Middle East, and it's not just confined to that old world. It, you have to understand, Europeans brought that technology to North America about 500 years ago. And just so you know, I, I'd love to show you this one day, Steph. Where I lived in New Mexico, there are all these historic acequias. Um, it's a really cool word. I learned that when I moved to New Mexico. But they're more or less irrigation ditches. Uh, and some of those irrigation ditches are hundreds and hundreds. We're, we're talking 400 years old. And you don't think about that in North America, but they've been on that North American landscape for centuries and centuries. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and like I said, that's when humans, we started changing because, you know, water shapes a lot of our world a lot of our world. And we started changing that, which means that we, we changed what was going to naturally happen again to suit our needs. But if you think about like even things, simple things like the advent of the, uh, the water wheel, which was used for like, you know, turning grinding stones and things like that. Both of those examples, um, you know, that's kind of like a, a low key activity, but once humans harness the power of water, again, the world completely changed. And then with the invention of electricity, soon came the concept of these hydroelectric dams and humans learned that water could generate their electricity. And those hydroelectric dams that you just mentioned, those things have had crazy impact on the landscape. Exactly. And I will say that's one of the things when we're always looking at renewable resources, it's, it's really easy to say, well, this dam is, you know, it's the water flowing, that's a renewable resource or, hey, the wind, that's a renewable resource. But there's always it's just like the trophic cascade that we were talking about in the last episode. There are always consequences that cascade out from a single event. And sometimes it's so hard for us to futuristically try to picture what those are. But, you know, we have, I'm totally going on a tangent here, Daryl. I apologize. But, you know, you have things like. I never giant, go on tangent. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, not you, not you. But, you yeah. know, you have things like solar farms and they're great for providing for human needs, but they're absolutely not great for lots of other things that coexist on this planet with us. So I, I will jump off of the soapbox there because it's one that I get pretty fired up about. 
But by damming up the rivers and creating these reservoirs, we've literally changed the whole hydrologic function of what we call a watershed. You know, water no longer, it doesn't flow freely, but it's contained for human purposes. You know, whether that's for the generation of electricity, for flood control, irrigation, drinking water, whatever. Again, humans are altering the resource to fit their needs instead of the resource shaping the form and function and activities of humans. I'm going to throw something out at you here, though, Steph. You got to admit, those reservoirs create some pretty dang good, awesome fishing spots. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Well, you know as well as I that w- whether or not you're above the dam or below the dam, there, there's some pretty good fishing to be had, but I'm sure you are very well of the negatives of that dam. Yeah, and the main negative is that they create an artificial landscape that can't be maintained. Um, you know, and, and plus, I, I read somewhere, I can't remember which article it was in all of our homework, there is more water now retained behind dams than all of the, nat- the, the flowing water in the natural rivers in the world, oh, which wow. is crazy. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, in, in lots of cases, when I say it's an artificial landscape that can't be maintained, it's artificial, obviously, because humans engineered that to happen. But in many cases, the fish that are put into those areas aren't native fish because the water characteristics of what it was before we dammed it are so vastly different than what it was after we dammed it. You know, for example, it may have been an icy, cold, freshwater stream that suddenly becomes a warm, mostly unmoving lake or, or reservoir, you know, obviously you're going to need to put new fish into those areas because the fish that like that cold stream aren't going to like that cold moving water, active moving water stream are not going to like that big clunkies pretty much still reservoir that's warm. And that's an issue in and of itself. Yeah. And since I so graciously let you go on a tangent before, I'm going to do a quick tangent here because I, I worked for a state wildlife agency. I, I worked with wildlife. And one of the things that I was always harping on is non-native species. The introduction of non-native species is bad. We don't want that because it competes with, with our native species and oftentimes in a very negative way. And so here I was with my wildlife division or our wildlife division that was really against non-native species. And then just down the hall was our fisheries division that ran fish hatcheries to introduce non-native rainbow trout pretty much all over the state. <laughs> and it was- Why, why did they wanna do that, Daryl? Well, the, the only way we can justify, and I, I can actually see this is you, you, you talked about it. When, when whatever company, TVA, whatever federal agency, state agency builds a dam, they create a different environment than what was there. It, it was, it may have been like you said, a cold, fast-moving water that really catered to certain species. For example, like trout. Um, but then you put in a dam there, and it changes the water characteristics drastically. It, it creates a, a warmer environment, slow-moving environment. So instead of trout existing in that area, it might be more conducive to bass. And, and so it creates an unnatural environment. And that was the only way to to justify putting a different species of fish in that area is because it's one that could survive in that unnatural environment. So it's it's a stretch and man, we could have a we could have a long, long debate on that. But 
yeah, putting in these hydroelectric dams really alters that landscape, that, that entire environment that was originally there. And any questions on that? No, I was trying to take a drink real quiet. Oh, I, I, I put it this way. You weren't real quiet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, since we're on the topic of kind of like invasive species, it, it, it's something I'm going to bring up right now. And it's actually it's actually the second time I'm bringing up this idea of non-native or invasive species because I brought it up uh, briefly when I, I when I was talking about like constructing roads into new areas. But here's the thing, folks, humans are responsible for introducing countless species in areas where they're not native. Now, understand much of or many of those introductions, it was due to humans development in their mode of travel. And so areas that were previously inaccessible to the human species now became very accessible when humans mastered the art, for example, the art of sailing, like being able to build a boat and sail to different places. Because think about it, before that, the only intercontinental travel that took place on the earth was pretty much done by avian species, like birds. I don't, I, I don't know if bats would travel that far, but things that fly were the only ones that could go from one island or one continent to the next. But as soon as humans mastered the sea and were, they were able to build boats and sail from one place to, the, to another, we not only could take ourselves to those other places, but we could also take other species with us as well. And that action alone might be one of the most detrimental activities of all. So what you're telling me is that if it was just people walking from place to place, something like an old world black rat wouldn't have just, you know, suddenly ended up on every single continent on the earth. <laughs> Eventually, not as fast because we sail faster than we walk. True. And I would like to think that if somebody had a big old black rat, with them, they'd <laughs> probably notice the only, because I mean, like, just to kind of reiterate what Daryl's saying, since he had his little tangent, like the, the old world black rat, it's the, it's it's from you know the european area the only rat-free continent on the planet now is antarctica um, and that's just because it's too cold for rats to survive there so the ones that hitched rides on boats going there didn't make it but anyway look look at just how many species have been completely wiped out because of those non-native species that you're talking about that humans introduced and better yet just think of how the landscapes are changing because of these introduced species i mean oh my gosh i can I can name dozens off the top of my head right now, like cats, pigs, horses, countless plant species. Oh, hey, how about reptiles down in Florida? You know, I mean, they're all wreaking havoc here in North America. Yeah, and you mentioned North America, and I want everyone to understand it's not just a one-way ticket. It's not like the old world just completely obliterates the new world. It goes both ways. If, if you look at species like the American bullfrog or even the cotton-tailed rabbit, those are invasive species in Europe. So it's it's not just going from the old world to the new world. And when we say old world and new world, we're talking Europe and Asia versus North America. Anyway, uh, like you said, I, I think the most detrimental aspect of this whole invasive species concept are probably the plant species. 
And many people think of, for example, kudzu. When you're thinking of a plant species that's taking over an, an area, you can picture kudzu, especially in the southeast, and man, they take over whole mountainsides sometimes. But it's far more than just kudzu that we're dealing with. Look at our native prairies. Our, our native prairies, which were a huge, wonderfully productive ecosystem, they're almost non-existent now because of non-native grasses. You talk about a huge gut punch there. <laughs> that, that thing, like those native grasses destroyed one of the most amazing ecosystems. There, there's still some of it left, but nowhere near as much as what used to be out there. So sadly, because of how much impact and how widespread these invasive plants are, it's literally impossible to go back. So, hey, as I was thinking about like the whole North America thing, it just reminded me of something. So can I ask you a question real quick here, Steph? Um, are you going to like try to ask me about how like, kudzu was an intentional introduction because they brought in the 1876 World's Fair? As, as long as you stop breathing so hard. That's it. It's not me. It's the Anatolian. Anyway, unless, I mean, if you were going to try to stump, like, stump me with some amazing kudzu revelation, which I could probably, you know, get. Are you going to try to stump me with something? <laughs> you got to stop Sorry. talking about kudzu because your Anatolian goes crazy whenever you mention it. Yeah. No. Just Sorry. No, I, I won't try to stump you. But have you ever read the book? 1491 by Charles Mann. No, so why don't you enlighten us, even though I have a feeling I know what it's going to be about based on that title. Well, you are pretty sharp, you know that? I know, sharp, sharp tongue sometimes too. <laughs> so anyway, for our listeners out there, uh, for both of them that is, <laughs> Dr. Charles Mann in his book, 1491, he, he describes what North America was like prior to that European invasion. Now, first off, understand that Europeans most likely arrived earlier than 1492, but that's the year that most people are familiar with because it pretty much signifies the year that Christopher Columbus arrived in North America. Anyway, we're not arguing that point. His book, is absolutely fascinating because it describes what life was like in North America before that momentous event. But here's the thing, it paints a picture that not many people are really aware of. It describes a very populated North America and how the landscapes were already being altered by the native peoples. So no Quick doubt- question. I, sure. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I have no, a quick question. So, interrupt anytime. You, you were you were saying obviously 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We all know that, so we all pinpoint that. And you're also saying in this book in 1491 that it paints a picture that that it was already a, a relatively populated landscape. So does that? I, I, it just makes me wonder if there's some correlation because there is evidence that the Vikings actually settled in North America um, right around 1021 AD, which is about 400, almost 500 years sooner. But because it wasn't as populated by all of those indigenous folks, I, I mean, I just wonder if that. Well, I don't know. Weren't the Vikings more in the, let's just call it what is more in the Canadian areas? Like I they, mean, they, they like, weren't as opposed to Northern Virginia. I mean, well, I I just don't know much about the history of where the Vikings, and that was what I was referring to. There's 
there's lots of unknown records of when when folks from Europe like, landed in North America. Um, yeah, like but, the North but, settlements and stuff. I don't know. What I'm referring to mostly is the fact that the native peoples, the the ones that were here for thousands of years, a lot of people just have this impression that North America was uninhabited. And that is far, far from the truth. The native peoples had a very robust and widespread uh, community here in North America well, well before the Europeans arrived. So anyway, did, I didn't answer your question today. It, it's okay. I don't, I'll, I'll research it. Okay. But it, here's the thing. Yes. The native peoples were here thriving on North America uh, well before the Europeans landed here. But there is absolutely no doubt that the arrival of the Europeans, they actually increased what I mentioned before, the, the fact that the land was already being altered because those Europeans, they, they brought more advanced technology and they were able to alter it in a much quicker fashion. Uh, but here's the thing, humans, humans were very much a part of the landscape prior to 1492. But this is the part I like best from Charles Mann's book. And it's the take home message that, well, that at least I got out of that book. So the author, Dr. Mann, he made a very astute declaration. He said, we need to stop trying to recreate the past. Instead, what we need to do is we need to look forward towards the future and try to create a better world for us and for all the species that we share it with. So a lot of times, let me try to explain that, because a lot of times people, when, when they're thinking about the environment or wildlife or anything in the natural world, we're trying to say, well, this is what it was like in the past. And we got to stop looking backwards. We got to start looking forward. That, that makes sense. And I, and I like that, that statement, but you know, like you said, sadly, all, all we do is try to recreate the past and that's not even possible because of the amount of change that's taken place. Yeah. Well, th that's a great point. And that brings up another issue. What issue is that, sir? Okay. Well, the question is, what point in the past do we strive for? And, and here's an example, and I'll use a wildlife species to demonstrate. Bobwhite quail, you familiar with them? They used to be everywhere. You, mm -hmm. you, could, you could hear stories about like your, your grandfather or great-grandfather, especially if, if they lived in the East. And whenever oldies, I'll call them, <laughs> old man Johnson, whenever they used to walk about the landscape, they would always remark about how quail would flush from underneath their foot, wherever they walked. If they lived east of the Mississippi, quail were everywhere. <clears throat> Sorry, but they haven't, like, quail have been pretty well known to be in a, a pretty precipitous decline now for, like, decades. Yeah, well, tell me more about what you know about quail. Oh, well, I know they have an awesome call that goes something like, <laughs> I don't want to whistle too loud because I'm, I don't know my headphones are there. You you whiffed on your first whistle. Oh, sorry. I don't want. Why you just? You told me to get rid of the dog, and now you want me whistling in the house. Okay, I, here. So the quail whistle goes. That wasn't very good, but you know what it's. Yeah, like. it very good. Anyway, but so quail for our listeners, um, they sort of sound like Daryl and I. Only we sound like really stupid versions of them, <laughs> but they. 
they're one of those, those species that like those early successional habitats, you know, they thrive on this mixture of kind of like freshly cleared land. That's, it's not like barren. So we're not talking about like right after it's clear cut. Hmm. So they need essentially those native grasses. Um, and then some of those, like the really early tree succession and that, that we see in those types of habitats. Yeah. Hey, have I ever told you you're pretty sharp? Yeah, about a minute and a half ago, so cut it out. Well, you hit the nail right on the head with the quail. And, and so you have to understand for the listener, our listeners out there, quail thrive in those areas that are freshly cleared and they're somewhat scrubby. Now, when you think of the eastern landscapes, like eastern being east of the Mississippi, Mississippi River, when you think of the landscape, say, 100 or 200 years ago, what do you imagine it look like? A really big version of Easter Island almost. I mean, <laughs> Europeans, it is well known. Europeans chopped down pretty much everything in eyesight. If they could get their hands on it as quick as they could, they were cutting it down. So, I mean, you, it, it literally, I don't want to make the Easter Island crack again, but you literally hear these stories about how most of the Eastern states were absolutely completely devoid of forest because they were cleared for farmland, using trees, for for mills, for houses, for boats, for shades, for furniture. I mean, you name it. We used wood for everything back then. So you quite literally had just these teeny tiny pockets of virgin forest that we can find anywhere in the East now. Yeah. And you mentioned they, they cleared that area for farmland. And what can you tell me, what kind of farming practices were out there, say, like 100 years ago as as you can compare it to today so that's what we would call like dirty farming practices and i don't mean that as a derogatory term or anything about cleanliness it's just that today's machinery is so efficient that it you know they found every practical inch well let me phrase that my 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 mouth and my brain are not keeping up to speed they've literally found a way to effectively farm every inch so when you were just using a horse and a plow or a rudimentary tractor, there's lots of places on your farm that you just couldn't quite get to. You know, it was just a little too difficult to get the mule or the cow and the plow in there or with those early farm tractors. Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. They probably needed an acre just to turn it. So it quite literally having those areas that they tried to clear, but it just didn't quite work. It ended up, and again, keeping in mind the massive deforestation it created a lot of very scrubby areas that caused certain species like the quail to thrive because we created their perfect habitat. Very good. And you're getting to the point we're trying to make. So we established the fact that quail, like when our grandfathers or great grandfathers were out there, um, or even up to a hundred years ago, they were out there in tremendous abundance, mostly because of what the landscape looked like. And that was this human created farmland area that humans created because of those dirty farming practices. Now, Steph, go back a thousand years. What do you think the quail population looked like back then? Well, you know, although the Native Americans, they did farm and they did harness the use of fire to clear some land. But, you know, population and scale is still a lot different. So I imagine that the landscapes weren't nearly as altered as they were that, that, you know, I don't want to say mere hundred years ago, but if we're doing a hundred versus a thousand, then it's just a mere hundred years ago. You know, they, that means they probably just had 
much less of that early successional habitat. So truth be told, I imagine the quail populations a thousand years ago were not nearly as robust as what they were 100 years ago. And similar to today, they're not nearly as robust today. Yeah. And, and I think your assumption there is just really, really good. And because of that fact where those quail populations were vastly different, do you, do you see the conundrum? Well, I mean, yeah, because of, if you're talking about managing for the way that things used to be in a past, a past that we can't go back to, a past that, let's be honest, we don't even know all of the things that kind of rolled into making that past the idyllic little place that it is in our heads. So where in the past are we supposed to go? Exactamundo. That was the point I was trying to make. And that is why I really love that quote from Dr. Mann in his book. We, we need to stop looking at the past. One, because we're not exactly sure exactly how it looked, but we don't even know where in the past to go to. And, and so what we really need to do is stop focusing on the past and we want to focus on what we want for our future. I agree. Um, I, I agree, but I, I also, just as a sidebar, wish people would stop thinking that they're smarter than nature. That just irks me, you know, anyway, but that's, that's probably I, a whole another episode all on its own. Humans, though, we've been exploiting Earth's resources for so long. But I mean, it, there's this part of me that says we've got to start planning ahead instead of believing that we have all of these unlimited resources. We don't. The resources that we have, and I'm not just talking about fossil fuel, folks. I'm talking about water and, and food and all of this stuff that we, we need. We don't need fossil fuels. It just makes our life a lot easier. We, as a species, survived prior to fossil fuel uses. But we have to be very careful with this because, again, humans are the thing that's messed it all up. I don't honestly think that we're smart enough to fix it all. But the, you know, I, I literally, this is such a touchy topic. I really want to go on a tangent, but I know we're probably running long again. Are there any other major impacts that human had that you can think of humans had that you can think of that you want to talk about before? Cause I'm, I'm literally red in the face. Cause I could start just going on a tirade. I love when you get red in the face, <laughs> but I don't I, know how to take that. <laughs> no, I usually, usually when you want to grab that soapbox and stand on it, you're so passionate about these things and it, it's just great to see people passionate about what they love and you're eloquent in, in what you say. So I'd love to go down that. Do, do you want to keep talking for about another hour? Uh, yes and no. So no, not really, you know, just let's just, just give me the highlights of something else that you thought about that has a huge human impact. Okay. How about pollution? That, that right there in itself can be a whole nother episode because we can we can really roll that whole concept of pollution into a, a, a really cool issue called climate change. I okay, so just between you and I, I very much like the thought of that. Like I very, very much like the thought of that because when we're talking about the the Anthropocene and things that make the Anthropocene and what that what actually goes into that actual geographic record, um, you know, things like that. For example, you know, think about plastic. Think about the ocean. We, we use the ocean floor for a lot of our, our studies on what the, the geographic time record is showing us. We'll take this core, stick it down into that 
I don't want to call it the muck, but for lack of a better term, the muck in the bottom of the ocean and we'll drill down. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds on hundreds of feet, pull it up, slice it with a laser into these tiny itty bitty things and analyze each one. So we can look at, at what settled on the earth's floor over this course of time, because that includes chemicals, that includes um, environmental atmospheric elements, that includes the amount of sunshine that was affecting ocean life. I mean, it shows us this whole stuff. And imagine what it's going to be when we get to the Anthropocene, where, you know, you slice, 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 and it's all this natural stuff. And then boom, suddenly you're full of all these plastic particulates, you know, what is that going to look like? And then climate change, it is one of those icky topics, you know, it either seems to cause debate or confusion. I would love to talk about that, but I think that we need to save it for another episode. Okay. I, I agree. Cause we can, man, we can talk about that all night long, but if we do it, as another episode, you ready to do a boatload more research? That is my favorite part. <laughs> I know it is. So I'm kind of excited you're willing to dive into that. So, all right, Steph, why, why don't you start wrapping up today's episode and give us that two minute summary of some of the things we just talked about today. Oh, toughy. Cause we were, we got a little scattered and had a few, few rants, but um well, you know, we've, we've spent the last couple of episodes talking about the human species and their tremendous impact on the earth itself. You know, this didn't just start within the last few hundred years. It's been going on for tens of thousands of years, albeit the magnitude of our impact has definitely increased tremendously over the last like few centuries. But anyway, this impact, it can be literally traced back to Homo sapiens ability to alter the landscape to meet their needs um, again, instead of the vice vice versa happening. The development of I can talk. The development of agriculture was probably the first like really large scale activity that started shaping our landscape. It didn't exactly start there, and it sure hasn't ended there. Um, human technology has resulted in all of these fast developing means of like travel, sprawling urban areas, hydroelectric dams, this whole slew of cascading effects from those advancements. You know, for example, the increase rate in the spread of, of non-natives and invasives like you were talking about. Sometimes it's an intentional introduction of a non-native. It's really, really exasperating when you think of the monumental changes that the earth has seen due to the exploitation and arrogance. My words, I, I will say those are my words, but the exploitation and arrogance of a single species. You know, without a doubt, we have absolutely changed the geologic record. We've changed the face of our planet. And, you know, in other words, fast forward a few hundred thousand years from now, and you're going to undoubtedly see the impact and the presence of humans in that earth geologic record, like I was just saying a second ago about the ocean floor, you know, and there's so much more to it than just plastics and pollution and, and building and agriculture. But it's literally the first time in a planet's history that a species, a single species was responsible for these major massive changes to the planet as opposed to to various natural events or you know these things that happen over unfathomable periods of time um so that that i don't know how well i summed it up d but does that does that sum it up yeah sums it up pretty well you're you're you are pretty good at summarizing things and since you are so good at, at summarizing things, I think I'm going to leave you in charge of wrapping this episode up. Lazy, lazy, lazy. <laughs> yep, that's me. All right, Dorothy, any shout outs? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll do a shout out to Dorothy. Um, <laughs> uh, believe it or not, no, I've got no shout outs for today. I'm working them up. I'll, I'll do a big shout out coming up here soon. Okay. How about you? No, I mean, I, I spent my my maximum allowance of time on Facebook. Um, yeah, actually, it was last night. I was there for 10 minutes. That's my fill. That's all I can handle um, for the for a three month period. So no, I've got absolutely nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was um, just waiting for you to I, tell it, me about some Facebook escapades. Well, the, the only thing I saw on Facebook yesterday was you, <laughs> and I've got to corral you in because you you first want to kidnap a woodchuck, then then you're like, <laughs> dang, badgers are pretty darn cute. Now, I think you were responding to one of the swap students, and and they loved raccoons. So I've got to slap your hand if you start eyeing up either a, a woodchuck, badger, or raccoon. I didn't, you left off ermines. I added ermines oh, yeah. to the list. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, keep me I, will, I will go ahead and, and wrap it up. And a big shout out actually to the, the the two people on Facebook that got me to actually engage on Facebook. Who that, That's Sam um, and Renee. So I'm not sure if they're listening, but huge shout out to them. They near and dear to my heart, both of them. And so once again, we would like to thank everybody who listens to us for taking the time out of their day to do so. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook so that you can keep up with the conversation there as well, besides just listening to our podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And don't forget to tell everybody that you know um, about wildlife for you, because again, we trust you guys to be ambassadors for wildlife and help us get this message out. We sure can't do it all on our own. And we all have to remember that when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge often means their existence. Good night, folks. Well, well, what? I'm waiting for one of your normal closing cheesy jokes. You know, some sometimes they're a little corny. They kind of relate to our episode. I'm waiting on that joke for like some early human joke or something. You know, I do look forward to it, but alas, I've been so busy researching like these last couple of episodes ever since we started talking about evolution. But I will tell you, some of the research I found, I found some crazy cool stuff on these recently discovered humanoids that they simply wandered all over the continent. Wandering humanoids. I've never heard of these. What are they called? They're called Neanderthals. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs>